This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Zelnina, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Regina Smith about her new book, Elections, Protest, and Authoritarian Regime Stability, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Regina Smith, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm very glad to have an opportunity to talk about the book, but especially with you, Anna, because I think that we share um, a, a common perspective of looking not just at the Russian state or Russian officials or reinventing Kremlinology, but to try to look at society and the evolution of Russian society and how uh, Russian society itself is changing in ways I think that are often unexpected for people who focus on our work. And, and that's the perspective I try to take in this book as well. Wonderful. Why don't we start this interview by uh, your introduction? Could you tell us a few words about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of political science at Indiana University. Indiana has been known for its Russian-Soviet studies, post-Soviet studies, uh, since the beginning of the Cold War, when uh, there was quite a bit of government funding channeled to Indiana to build uh, particularly Soviet and Russian studies. And as far back as 1912, the Carnegie Corporation had given money to Indiana to study Russia. And so I feel like this is just a wonderful home for me to work and think, uh, engage with the next generation of thinkers about the post-communist, post-Soviet space, and uh, to train graduate students. Sounds great. So uh, we're now transitioning to the book that you published just recently. Congratulations. I think it's a very important uh, book for the Russian studies, but also for political science. And I think uh, you could maybe introduce the book to us and explain why Russia, why this time frame, and why it is an important contribution to political science and not just the Russian studies. Thank you for being so nice about the book. It means a lot to me, especially coming from someone from a different discipline uh, who can um, sort of read the book on their own terms. So this book, let me first say that this book started while I was in Russia on a Fulbright grant, and I had an apartment, uh, so luckily, overlooking Pushkin Square. And right about Thanksgiving, uh, and a very serious uh, policing contingent showed up at Pushkin, cordoned the square, and then was there guarding the square from that moment through March uh, 20, uh, 2012, and then into again in May. And so observing this made me think this is something really to study. And I was lucky to come from Duke University where I had had classes in social movements and social movement organization. And while that wasn't the central focus of my work, I felt like I had a toolkit and uh, could put it into practice. And so I quickly turned my attention to trying to understand that. From a political science perspective, uh, I had a complaint, which is that we tend in political science to capture moments, but not processes over time. 
Um, I was very lucky to be affiliated with the Higher School of Economics in Russia when I was in Russia uh, and with their uh, sociological team that was doing survey research. I hooked up with two very, very um, successful and talented graduate students, and we organized uh, a survey in the protests themselves and also in the pro-Putin rallies that the regime was mounting at the same time. And subsequently, we were able to talk about, we, we were able to interview a sort of random sample of Muscovites. So who did not protest. So then we had this wonderful uh, truncated sample of protesters, part participants uh, in support of the state, and people who chose to do nothing. And that was very exciting. And so we started to look at the data, very interesting patterns emerged that we can talk about. But I started to realize that these protests were not the beginning or the end of anything. That um, in a comparative context, uh, during the Arab Spring, which was you know, happening around the same time, political scientists and observers, journalists were using the word spontaneous. And in fact, there was really nothing spontaneous about these events. They had deep roots in the changes in Russian society. And so I decided to take the time, and here's where it became a labor of love, to both look at the roots of the protest going back to 2008. And I could have gone back further, but that's where I started. And then projecting forward the legacy of those protests to understand that even though these, this protest action uh, in Moscow, but really across Russia, didn't result in regime change, that it did profoundly change the interaction between state and society. And it also changed the structure of the Russian opposition and the response of the Russian government. And that's the, the breadth of the book. That's the 2008 to 2020. So maybe uh, to give an even more context to our listeners, so what was going on between 2008 and 2020 that is so important? And why did you decide to start in uh, 2008? So thank you for reminding me to do that. We, um, so in 2008, President Putin was facing term limits and uh, he needed to come up with a way to keep control over the Russian state, but respect the constitution, which at that moment was a tenant of his legitimacy and his rule. And what he did was place uh, his protege, Dmitry Medvedev, into the position of president by nominating him and then bolstering his election. Many observers say that that election was really the single most fraudulent in almost all of these elections, although it went by unnoticed generally and protest was quite small. And that was in part because I think the personhood of Medvedev himself, who was perceived as perhaps um, a reformer in, in important ways, and particularly the urban intellectuals, the, the activists, the people who were paying attention, saw Medvedev as a potential source of change. What happened over that time period was that we realized, I think increasingly observers, we analysts realized, that there wasn't going to be any significant change. And as the next round of elections approached, parliamentary elections in December 2011 and then presidential, in 2012, there started to be significant infighting within the Russian, the political elite to challenge Medvedev uh, with the idea that Putin would not return to the political stage. The Putin regime and in general Russian leaders had been really careful not to talk about elections too far in advance so as to allow people time to mobilize. Things had gotten out of hand to such a degree that by September, three months before the election in December 2011, uh, former President Putin, now Prime Minister President Putin, took the stage at the United Russia Party organization and announced that he would again run for president, return to the presidency, uh, and uh, 
Medvedev would return to the prime ministerial position. And that was a significant change in power and really uh, portended the status quo, continuation of the status quo. On the other side, in the opposition, uh, as there was elite contestation, we started uh, to observe uh, changes in the opposition. And in particular, people like Alexei Navalny, who is now used these protests to launch quite a successful political campaign, but really had been building on the opposition core, had coined the phrase, the party of crooks and thieves, to focus attention on the fact that Putin's party, United Russia, was highly corrupt and organizing uh, corrupt officials throughout Russia, not just at the center, but in the regions. And this uh, moniker, Party of Crooks and Thieves, caught on. And Navalny was quite clever at um, sort of promoting the moniker, having contests for uh, for pop for people to draw uh, little memes or to put post draw posters and things. And um, it became quite popular. And by the time I got to Moscow in early September uh, 2011 it was clear that something was happening. So everyone, there was a buzz. There was a literal buzz. Like I had not seen, and, I, and you know, here I reveal how long I've been going. I had not seen this kind of buzz since 1993 in the lead up to uh, the first free parliamentary election in Russia. It was just a profound transformation. And I had made it a point of being in Russia at election time over almost all those I missed, I missed one cycle. And it was really profoundly different. And the discussion of the moment was, what should we do? How do we use our vote to express our dissatisfaction? And Navalny himself was, uh, had promoted a voting strategy, anybody but United Russia, vote for anybody but the the ruling party. And just, it's okay if you vote for a communist, what you're really doing is expressing discontent. And I think he astutely understood that the communist party itself was not uniform and that there were people within the communist party who also were not happy with what was going on. Uh, other reformers uh, said to uh, advise people to spoil the ballot. The late uh, Boris Nemtsov had teamed up with Ilya Yashin, uh, a prominent opposition leader to do some YouTube videos of a little pig educating people about uh, how to spoil their ballot and put it in the box. So they were just simply going to protest, but not hand power. Other people advocated boycotting. And there was a debate about these different strategies and how people could, um, could express their discontent. And of course, that discontent connected to the growing sense of dissatisfaction with the lack of accountability in government and that people did not want another revolution, but what they wanted was reform. They wanted the government to be more responsive to social demands. And that was really the, the starting point of what was happening and the excitement that was happening. And then on top of that, you know, the police start cordoning off squares. So obviously the state was also perceiving the buzz, also feeling some fear about what could happen in the context of what had been the colored revolutions in other uh, post-Soviet states in Ukraine and Georgia, even in Kyrgyzstan, although that was a slightly different dynamic. In the Arab Spring, in Lebanon, it was a moment of protest. So clearly both state and society sort of in parallel were moving towards this idea that something could happen. And that was really the, the thing that I wanted to capture in the book. This is great. And I think you do a very good job of actually showing what the opposition was doing, but also the emotion of this moment uh, in political history. And opposition is such a big player in the book and in the political history of, uh, of Russia. But I wonder if you could spend a little bit more time talking about the state, the government, because they're also this other big player. Um, and I think um, it's interesting to talk about why 
authoritarian regimes need elections. So why are they playing this game? And I think it's also a big part of your argument that they need it for some reason. And this idea of a hybrid regime, I think also needs some context uh, for our listeners. Sure. So yes, that is a big sort of intellectual starting point. So let me back into that debate in political science by first defining a hybrid regime as one which is uh, democratic in form, that is, adopts the practices and um, institutions, uh, legislatures, presidents, even the language of democracy to describe how the system works, um, and but authoritarian in function. And that means that in every aspect of governance or process, in elections, in policymaking, in committee meetings, in the implementation of checks and balances, that the state undermines the democratic part of the process by usurping power or creating an uneven playing field. So in the case of elections, for example, uh, you know, fraud is uh, a manipulation is nothing new in Russian elections, even under the Yeltsin period in 1995. Uh, we see quite a bit of fraud. When I was in Saratov region in 1993, in this first very exciting election, there was all types, all sorts of electoral manipulation that was happening um, of various stripes. So, uh, and, and it has only grown in the Putin regime. And it starts out with being things like the Kremlin creating parties in order to siphon off support from its opponents. President Yeltsin did this starting in 1993. The Kremlin funneled funding through the back door, abrogating uh, funding laws in 1993. And they weren't above uh, manipulating vote counts if they needed to. Um, and so all of these practices are still present in Russia, but they've grown in importance and are even more blatant. So, so the visible part of fraud, the ballot stuffing, the, the manipulating turnout, that's all very, uh, has grown. But so has, and this is a key part of my book about this process of manipulation, so has the ability to determine who runs. So the Kremlin has... Uh, been very creative about using bureaucratic processes to ensure that no one who can challenge the regime can actually run for office. And this gives them near total control and handcuffs the opposition. And I think that has become increasingly understood with time. But when I started this book, and even right when it came out, the absolute value of control over the ballot is not well understood. And the way in which it handcuffs um, opposition is still not as well understood as it could be. So why elections, right? So if elections are so hard to manage or they take so much work and they create these moments of weakness, why elections? Well, it's well known that, um, in especially in contemporary authoritarian regimes, that ruling by coercion alone is very costly. And it, it impacts every aspect of governance. Not only is it directly costly in terms of uh, policing and, and surveillance and investment, it also changes how the economy runs. It changes how education works. It changes the capacity of small business to work. So the cost redounds through the entire system, making it less effective and less efficient. Uh, it's harder to target policy, and it creates information problems. It's less, the regime is less able to know what people want and to keep the social peace. So elections are not only a source of legitimacy, and these regimes would like to have legitimacy so they don't have to resort to coercion, but it's also a, a source of knowledge. Through elections, the regime knows the true outcome, it knows its weaknesses. It knows uh, what people want, where they want it. Russia is a vast country. Uh, the demands of the uh, population varies widely across the country. And so elections play a lot of really important roles in maintaining regime stability. And on top of all of that, President Putin inherit, inherits 
an electoral regime. And to get rid of elections, and this is another big part of the book, would send a strong signal to the to the population, not only the opposition, but the population, about what this regime is really about. So Putin has done a very good job of convincing very many Russians that they have a choice on the ballot and that they go to the polls every five or six years, depending on what election it is, and that 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 means that Russia is indeed a democracy. It may not work well, but President Putin's also done a very good job about uh, casting doubt that any democracy works well. So our democracy doesn't work well, but no democracy works well. So we therefore are a democracy and it's, it's okay right? To cancel elections would be a profound signal to say, we are not a democracy. There would be no ambiguity. And so this information game is a double-edged sword. It creates constraints on what the regime can and can't do. And that's an important constraint. And so getting rid of elections is virtually impossible. The idea is to keep constraining elections. And one thing that's happening right now that Russian analysts are very on top of is that the regime is quietly changing the rules again and the uh, patterns of manipulation in order to set the stage for Putin's re-election in 2024. And so so that the shock of a fraudulent election, again, a signal, we are not a democracy. They're very aware that the population in general does not want Putin to stay. They'd like to see, again, not a revolution, not regime change, but change, evolution. And so broad-scale manipulation could lead to fraud in 2024. Um, The population has changed. It's capable of mobilizing in that way. And so they're changing the rules to try to smooth over the gaps between the democratic process and the authoritarian process. I think you show it really well in the book, this change, how the regime, the government is also changing, trying new tools, uh, experimenting even, uh, but also the opposition is changing, right? This, uh, the other side of uh, the political process. So why don't you talk a little bit about them? Because you start in 2008, introducing them as a loose player, rather weak, And then this big moment in 2011 happens, and uh, they're also changing. So what's going on there? Who are they? What are they doing? And how are they transforming? Right. So another big message from the book that was really important to me was that even though oppositions are weak in the political science sense of the word, that is, they're not organized because it's very difficult, Uh, They're not well-funded because their funders are vulnerable to attack from the regime. Uh, Sometimes it's even hard to rent an office space because the people who rent offices to the opposition are then uh, persecuted uh, or, or told to break the lease. So it's very hard for the opposition to mobilize. Nonetheless, uh, from, you know, the mid 2000s, you see the emergence of a a fairly broad spectrum opposition with roots in the left and the right of the political spectrum, uh, mostly working in their own sandbox, their own ideological sandbox, but building ties to society, not sort of direct strong ties, but appeals, awareness, and so forth. Um, There is a cluster of opposition uh, on the right that's linked to small business and business owners because the Putin regime uh, is not friendly to small business as they had expected it might be, but also because increasingly small business is the target of corrupt rating and the use of law to expropriate resources and businesses. And so they see the regime as not in their interest and they start connecting with this opposition. And the opposition starts talking to each other. And this starts, and I think this is a fascinating story, starts in a very humble way um, where they start uh, engaging in a salon 
where they're reading, uh, uh, young oppositioners are reading together works of political philosophy and political science and discussing them. And these are people like Alexei Navalny, but also the national Bolshevik, uh, Sergei Udotsov, right? And uh, the more, uh, the democratic partner of former pri uh, deputy prime minister, or is it prime minister? Do you remember Boris himself? It's deputy, right? He was a deputy under Yeltsin. I can't remember. Um, and, and so Yashin is also in this group. And they are broadly reading and discussing and forging ties across ideology. And um, this turns out to be a, a really important moment that speaks to the value of networks across these folks. And so one of the big evolutionary moments is when they do start talking and cooperating across ideologic platforms. And one of the most poignant things I saw at these rallies, because it was a very exciting protest to, to go to them and to visit them, especially the ones that weren't particularly large, where you really see the activists interacting, was the way that um, sort of the, the skinhead nationalists greeted the Democrats with great warmth and affection. And, and so this was a really uh, a way that common ground was forged. And people in this time were adopting uh, different strategies. So Edward Limonov, the nationalist leader, longtime nationalist leader, was uh, staging uh, peaceful events on the 31st to evoke the constitutional moment or article that um, gave them freedom of assembly and they were gathering. They connected with um, the human rights activist Ludmila Alexeyeva together and started staging protests together. That partnership eventually fell apart. But what that did is start to open the door for some of these bystanders, these people who were watching what was happening and feeling that they wanted to do something to come in and join these events and to legitimize protest as a way of, it, of, a way of expression. At the same time, new media is coming in and the opposition is using new media and in very, very unexpected ways. Blogs become a hugely important uh, way of discussing politics. And one of the things that my work shows, the survey work shows, is that some of the first people to take to the streets were people who were not engaged in face-to-face -face networks, but were very deeply engaged in these discussions online. And they were the first movers. They were the vanguard of this movement. And in fact, they went way out in front of the organized opposition who really literally are saying nothing can happen. Sure, people are mad. They've stolen this election, but nothing can happen. And in fact, it's the bloggers and the, the online folks who say, forget you guys. We have a permit. We're going to the streets. So that's another huge evolution. The last evolution is, which I really um, think is, is people like Yashin and Navalny, is the linking of elections to protest. And as in the colored revolutions, and these people I think are astutely observing what's happening in the world, just as the Russian state has its think tanks and they're looking for historical analogy, so is this salon creating the foundation to go and look at the world and, and to sort of experiment with innovation. And what they recognize is that mobilizing in the election as if they were running, even though they cannot, but mobilizing as if they can run, organizing election observers to capture fraud, organizing a way to demonstrate that fraud in real time on an internet channel, uh, training people about how the system works, uh, highlighting inequities in the campaign and promoting these choices, these alternative choices, instead of just voting for Putin because Putin's party united Russia in 2011 because it can win, exercising your vote in a different way. Go out and vote, exhorting people to turn out in some way in general. That transforms the election period and engages people in this election. And another really struck striking moment in the protests was people holding signs 
of their election experience reporting the fraud they saw within these protests. So I think those three innovations, the, the, the cross-platform communication, the use of new media, and the linking of elections and protests really transform the opposition. Post-2011, that linkage between protest and elections becomes even stronger. And this is, I think, a critical story of the book. What that also does is carry the locus of that one protest for free elections in 2011-2012, for fair election, probably a better translation for fair elections. What that does is to move, connect that movement back to the regions so that it's possible to start contesting elections and fraud in the regions. And this is where Alexei Navalny really excels. He uses election moments to organize a national team of opposition folks who are deeply grounded in the politics of the regions and then are linked together and strategizing and working together um, to sort of push the opposition agenda forward. And they start working to overcome the regime's uh, monopoly over the ballot. To, and they showed that when non-traditional United Russia candidates get on the ballot, they can win. And that really created momentum in the opposition. And it created excitement in the population because, again, evolution means you elect people who then can work together in government to represent people. And that was a really dangerous moment for the regime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I hope we get a chance to talk a little bit more about Navalny later, because he's such an amazing figure in the book and in Russian politics. But I wonder if we could talk a little bit about this really interesting phenomenon, the pro-regime uh, movements or the counter movements, because this is not a straightforward story of the opposition versus the state, right? There's this third player, which is really interesting. So I, I'm so glad you want to talk about that. I, I also was really fascinated. And of course, the picture of this in the Western press, uh, what, you know, people would go in and they would find the people that would say, I don't even know why I'm here. I was paid. I was bust here. I have no idea, especially early in the in the rallies, because whenever there was. So this is also an interesting moment. It started out when there was a large protest, then there would be a scramble to organize a large rally. Then the Kremlin gets in front of the protests and they're either contemporaneous or there's a, a, a pro-Putin rally because, again, he's running now for president and they're like campaign rallies. Um, and American listeners can really start to see how Donald Trump sort of borrows this strategy of calling his supporters between elections to give an illusion of bigger support, right? So we, and this was, this was exactly what Putin was doing. He was holding them uh, as a demonstration of his deep support, creating an illusion of deep support that was not there. I don't want to say that President Putin doesn't have genuine support. He does. And some of those people support him because they are much better off than they were at some other time. That's their reference point. And I don't want to disparage that. Um, but many people uh, really were there because they wanted to see what was going on or be part of something. It was very exciting to see what was happening. And the regime made a show of its strength by using its resources, buses, 
busting people in. It wasn't, the regime was not shy about saying, if we want to bring people to the streets, we can, so don't fight us. So it was kind of also sort of a double-edged sword in the sense that it showed regime power, but it also showed genuine support. And um, it was a very interesting moment. If you compare the pro-regime rallies to the anti-regime protests visually, it's quite interesting, right? Pro-regime rallies had beautiful flags and colors. They often gave out swag like T-shirts and hats. And even in the Far East puffer coats with uh, in, the, in the colors of the Russian flag with letters on the back that said, I'm for Putin, you know, they, like you really could collect a lot. They made it into festivals. So the festivals also had... Um, as Easter approached, you know, pancakes and celebration of traditional values and dancing and all sorts of performance. Um, and, and so they were a truly interesting phenomena. Nonetheless, even though most of those people supported Putin, maybe not entirely, but did support him, they did not buy into many of his more pernicious narratives. So we found that in the... Um, in the surveys, only 18% bought into the idea that the reason that people were protesting was that Hillary Clinton had paid them. So President Putin and his team had sort of uh, gone out of their way to put this conspiracy theory out there. And even the people in his rallies really didn't buy this. And I think this is also something that is not well understood about Russia and really any polity with a, a far, far right sort of contingent or a conspiracy theory contingent, is that there are boundaries to, the, to how well they travel. And certainly it has other effects, you know, in the current crisis, uh, softening people up to believe and then, you know, and then saying it's all that you the U.S. is starting this, the U.S. is creating crisis in the Ukraine. That's probably a legacy of some of that early conspiracy work, but it still has boundaries. Um, so, so I guess, yeah, it was, I was very, very excited that we managed to get in there. I will say that over time, it became harder to talk to those folks. So uh, the regime got smarter about having team captains that really uh, undermined our ability to talk to people. But we persisted nonetheless, this wonderful group of undergraduates we had trained who could blend in and do better, do a really nice job. And um, so we persisted and got I think a pretty good sample of people who attended the rallies. Oh, but that sounds like a tricky task for a political scientist to perform. It became more challenging, I think, than we expected, right? And so a couple of our young people, you know, the thing that always, I'm going to interrupt myself and say, the thing that always amazes me when I'm in a Russian event is how casually brave people are right so in the in the protest there would be just really very large uh riot police who were pushing back the crowd very aggressively at very high speeds and right on the side of the line people would be calmly standing there uh videoing people are being arrested others are simply videoing and so it was the same with these student interviewers. The captains would come over and they would sort of harass them and sort of not physically push them away, but push them away. And they would just come back 10 minutes later and re-engage the interview. Very casual kind of bravery. Whereas when I'm there, the adrenaline is so high that I can barely take a photograph. I'm so excited and worked up, right? So it's quite a, an amazing phenomenon to watch, actually. But also, I think it comes through in the book sometimes, this emotion, this excitement of the moment, especially when you describe the rallies and like those uh, innovative techniques that the opposition had to use. But... Um, what can, about I, can I just interrupt you and say, I'm so excited that that came through. It was, um, you're, you're not mentioning that the book has a giant game theoretic model in chapter, <laughs> chapter three, which I'm, I'm sure most readers will not be that interested in, but um, it was an important theoretic component that sort of summarizes the regime's advantage, but that the other side of the book comes through makes me really excited and, and happy. So I'm glad that spoke to you. 
It has. It, it, it is a fine balance, right, to include both the theoretical modeling and the emotion. But I, I think it happened in this book. But one more question I think is important to talk about in, uh, when talking about the pro-regime and anti-regime uh, protests is class. Because sometimes you mention this idea or a narrative that the protesters were hipsters or internet hamsters or whatever. And on the other side, there was the people or narod. So what about that? So I think we have to draw a distinction between activists um, who kicked off these protests and they were largely the hipsters and the internet hamsters. And that's what President Putin labeled them. He tried to create uh, a gap between these these young urban intellectuals who were organized around these wonderful media outlets, Afisha and Bolshoi Gorod. And, you know, I can't urge people enough to just like poke around on the websites of those places. They're just tremendous. People like, and, and, and then the Narod, the, just the people, the bystanders. And usually when we say Narod, we're talking about the people out in the countryside. Here we're talking about the people who are just going um, through their everyday lives, right? And uh, so, so I think that difference, that distinction is important. What's important about 2011-12 is that the hipsters and the Narod come together on the streets. And they come together very comfortably. And um, they and and it's the difference in political science or social movement theory between the pre-mobilization, the events that bring the vanguard to the streets, and the effect of the protest as a mobilizing force itself. And I think that's a really another theoretically important moment. And again, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about more contemporary events. But when Navalny returns to Russia we see again a quick mobilization that but the narod join the hipsters on the street the narod join the young people on the street and the protest itself becomes mobilizing because the opposition has done a very good job of saying we are like you we also are frustrated about accountability we're frustrated about corruption. We want our lives to be better and we do not want revolution. And oh, by the way, this guy who is our president has been here far too long. Interesting. And I think another theme that is quite big in the book, and maybe you would like to talk about it a little bit more, is inaction. Because at some point you say, from the point of view of certain theories, political science theories and sociological theories, it is surprising at all that those protests in 2011 happened. But they were still relatively small if you compare it to other possible scenarios. So what happened there? Why did not more people participate? Right. So I think you're exactly right. It was not as large as you protest in Ukraine or in Georgia. It certainly wasn't as large as Arab Spring. And although the protest was uh, incredibly mobilizing, it wasn't, um, it didn't kick off a huge uh, occupation of central Moscow, for example. I think that's for two reasons. Um, one is the effect of the 1990s and Putin's effective narration of a myth of the 1990s um, to make people really fearful of revolution. So the regime has done a wonderful job of both stigmatizing the effect of revolution and linking change, any kind of change, to revolution. So Putin himself has was embodying at that time, and I think still in some ways embodies, uh, an idea of stability. Um, and stability simply means you don't go back to a place where you don't know you are feeding yourself out of your dacha garden and you are facing unemployment, or you're using your car as a taxi. The 90s were a terrible time in Russia. The social cost was very high. Of course, most of that didn't have to do so much with elections and democracy, but market transition. Uh, but President Putin has shifted that narrative to blame elections and democracy, and also the West for that terrible time. 
And uh, no one has really been effectively able to counter that narrative. And, and people rightly so are cautious. Um, I think the other thing that really worked in President Putin's favor was, um, A, it was very, very cold. So I remember being on the streets in February 23rd, right? You were probably there too, where we poured coffee out of a thermos and it froze as we were pouring out. It was very, very cold. And people were quite concerned. You know, Russians worry about their health and colds and other things. And people were concerned about going out in the cold. Um, and the health ministry was telling people not to go out because it was too cold. So there was that dynamic, which I think was small, but it certainly kept women and children off the streets, right? Um, so the the last thing was that parliamentary elections sparked protest. Fraud in parliamentary elections sparked protest. Mr. Putin was running for presidential elections three months later in March. And it was very clear that they weren't, the protesters were not going to be able to overturn parliamentary elections. So that gave the Putin regime a chance to respond to protesters' demands about presidential elections. And they started talking about making presidential elections fair and free. And so they conscripted some opposition, not likely to challenge Mr. Putin, the communist leader who's been running since 1991, for example. We know the upper limits of his support. Um, and the presidential seat is a much different seat to express opposition over uh, for a regular voter. The president has a lot of power. He, he controls, and I don't think there'll be a she for a very long time, controls the parliament. And um, so to express opposition in parliamentary elections is one thing, in presidential elections is another. And in fact, Mr. Putin, uh, Prime Minister Putin at the moment, did a lot of things to make it appear as if that election was more free, including putting cameras in polling places. Now, I just want to point out to people that there were 95,000 precincts in the presidential election. So there were proportionally very few cameras, but showing that video up all day, letting people look at what was happening, uh, really convinced people that that maybe free and fair was possible. So I think it was, look at what we can do. The protest in some ways succeeded. Look at what we can do. We don't need to keep going out. Putin's going to win this, this election. We're ready. We agree, but not now. And I think um, the last protest in the sequence uh, came in early May in Moscow. And that was really quite a different crowd. There, the Narod was out and families were out. The weather was good. It was really, again, a hugely exciting sort of moment um, and that's the day where provocation led to violence. Uh, many people were arrested. Uh, the regime made, took very good care to arrest a range of people from the crowd, old, uh, not old, middle-aged, uh, skinheads, non-skinheads, uh, uh, workers, state workers, so that anyone could see we can arrest and jail anyone. And so the repression, I think, really is what ended this. Behind the scenes, to go back to the class question, the regime was starting to threaten state workers and tell state workers if they were going to appear at the protests, they were in danger of losing their jobs. And all you need is to fire a few people or persecute a few people for other people to be afraid. And the, the difference between the first people to fall out between, because protests continued quite weakly into the following fall, the people who stopped showing up were the middle-class state workers because they were fearful of losing their jobs. This is also a tactic of uh, President Orban in Hungary. Uh, this was a very important moment in, in, in the arc of your narrative. 
And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the aftermath and the lasting legacy of those events, because it's also a big part of your argument that it didn't just end there. So what happened next and how is that evolving? Well, I think two things happened. Navalny took the elections protest model and started organizing and contesting around Russia. He himself, even though, you know, the state, the regime and uh, Putin supporters are like to say that Navalny himself is unpopular. That may be true that Navalny himself is unpopular or, or not extraordinarily popular, um, because he's been so stigmatized by arrest and other things, disinformation. Um, I would imagine there's a lot of sort of motivated reasoning. Russians don't like to think of their state as an assassination state. They don't want to believe that this regime is uh, willing and capable to try to poison someone in their underwear, no less. It becomes very sordid, this story. And I really urge people to look at some of the Navalny videos that give the details of the poisoning that make it extraordinarily credible, I think, to say that he was not poisoned is to ignore facts. Um, so, so that was one thing. Navalny emerges as a leader, a spokesman. There's unity around Navalny. Uh, protest starts happening in regions, around regional elections. City councils become politicized. And uh, more important in people's eyes, people genuinely do turn out and pay more attention to that. Uh, so that's very important. Regional elections, even in the last election, the headline was that Putin's party wins this constitutional majority, the Duma, with incredible manipulation and fraud. But if we look at regional elections, they did not do as well. They, did, they were worse off than they have been at any point since uh, 2008. That is significant. So there's contestation in the regions. There's also evidence that uh, people took the inspiration of the four fair, elect four fair elections protest, and they took it to the policy arena. And they started saying, okay, we are not, uh, we have a lack of accountability across a lot of policy issues. And we started to see a rise in small protest actions around the country, not only in Moscow, around things like land use and infill, tearing down historic buildings, uh, the church being aggressive about reclaiming land, clinics and parks, for example. Uh, doctors protested uh, when there was a decline in rural hospitals and rural clinics. We saw professional groups protesting. And this scattershot sort of small protest that we do not have our hands around in any way was building social capacity. And you and I collaborated a little on this edited volume to try to put out at least a vision of the breadth of small protest that's happening and the ways in which it's contributing to building social capacity, but also expectation that the regime should be responding to what people want and, and people should be engaged in the policy process. And so we see that happening as well. And of and and maybe this is your next question, and you can tell me. And of course, what that leads to is the regime backing into repression away from former pillars of legitimacy, right? Some semblance of elections, fair elections. There, you know, increasingly people don't vote because they realize it's pointless that the elections themselves are highly manipulated. That's no longer a pillar of legitimacy for President Putin or for his regime. Um, economic well-being. The, the cost of the Putin regime is economic development, and that is becoming increasingly clear to people. So the pillar of stability as election surety, uh, as, as economic surety, that's gone away. That pillar is gone. Putin on the national stage remains a strong pillar. So the stability argument shifts from economic stability, everyday life stability, which is hard to claim given how difficult life is in Russia these days for many, many people. I would say the majority of citizens now shifts to, but Putin 
restores dignity on the national stage, commands attention, and so forth and so on. And that makes this Ukrainian moment very perilous for Putin. If he uh, reveals himself to be weaker than he has portrayed, or if he is forced into starting a war in order to maintain stability, then I think things popular perceptions will change quite quickly. Um, so again, we're playing an information game. President Putin wants us all focused on this moment before the war. President Biden, the West, uh, people who don't want war, want us all focused on what happens at the moment that tanks cross the line. And, and I think also Russian public opinion will change at the moment that tanks cross the line. That, that we're in a very volatile moment where polls aren't really revealing what people will be thinking next week. Um, and I'm sure people will be writing about that, but we're already starting to see cracks in public opinion around support for the war. A war, hopefully not the war. Hopefully there not, will, will not be the war, right? So I think that's another lesson of my book is that Things are changing. Society has capacity. Uh, there was um, protest around Crimea. It was not very large, but the study sort of underscores that this moment is not Crimea. Much has changed over time. And so to keep following that change and understanding those changes are important. There's so much going on. It feels like another critical moment, right? And I think that, that kind of leads me to my next and last question. What are you working on? How, how are you going to deal with all, all that's happening? So I'm working on two projects that come directly out of this book and partly the answer I just gave you. One is to think about how popular response to policy, in this case, a policy you and I are both very interested in, this Moscow housing renovation program, which is really a demolition program an urban renewal, a massive scale urban renewal program, which is now moving outside of Moscow to other regions, interestingly, um, is and how people are responding to the idea that this regime is um, going to tear down their houses and relocate them to new apartments and how they organize to protect their interests how they organize to influence the details of the policy, how they use the courts to, um, to contest some of this or use the courts as a venue or a locus of protest. Um, so I'm continuing to work on that project. We have some very interesting findings. Again, this is survey focus group based where we've surveyed people who live in the houses that could be affected by the program. Um, who are included in the process and those who are not included in the process. And we find interesting things like those included in the process have higher levels of pro-social norms. They want to cooperate more. They want to collaborate more than those who didn't have to fight the regime to protect their interests. So there's this indirect spillover effect of the policy to create social capacity. And we're going on to look at another wave of surveys to look once people move into their new homes, do those norms persist or not? We also see that they're much more likely to vote in municipal elections. And we don't ask them who they vote for. We have those data, but they don't like to say. We have a lot of non-response. It makes me um, skeptical about some of the findings, we'll see. But, but, and they also see municipal government as more important. Now, this is something we see across the world, right? So here again, we have the message. There is nothing unique about Russia or Russians. They are responding to a different set of incentives, but there is nothing particularly odd about Russians and sort of myths of wanting strong leaders and so forth doesn't really explain, is limited in its explanation. In any society, there is 20% of the population that really wants a strong leader and exhorts that narrative. Um, okay, so that's one project and I'm, I'm really excited. I'm working with Russian scholars on that project. And uh, let me just shout out to Katya Borisova, Israel Marquez, and um, Alexei Sakharov at Higher School of Economics. 
And those papers are coming out now. I'm super excited. And the other thing I've just started to work on based on the Kazakh protests, also a very unlikely uh, case of protest, uh, seemingly spontaneous, but not really. You see the same indicators of protest leading up to the events. I'm working with Pauline Jones uh, at University of Michigan, Sarah Oates at University of Maryland, to try to put together a toolkit to capture what happens after the protest. And here we're really interested in whether regime narratives and, and reforms after the protest can take on the force of convincing the population that protest is not as in its interest, that in staying engaged is pointless, and how the society responds to this authoritarian post-protest toolkit. So we want to understand what that looks like and then do surveys over time, not just one-shot deals, but get a, get a baseline and then study how state narratives and state reforms, probably the same sort of democratic inform, authoritarian in function, influence uh, post-protest attitudes and behavior and the likelihood of protest happening again. Because the political science world is faced with this puzzle that the 2010s were bookended by protest actions, often in the same country where we had written off renewed protest. So we see places where large protest happens, you get this repressive response, and then you get renewed protest. This is what happened in Russia. Against all expectations, Navalny returns from Germany after, after being uh, poisoned, still in a weakened state, immediately arrested, signaling that this regime is not going to tolerate any dissent. And protest breaks out not only in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but across Russia. So the protest, it was a symbol of protest capacity. And it made President Putin very nervous, I think. So the people who see the existence or the durability of the Russian state as tied only to Putin, renewed authoritarian uh, action. Wonderful. Thank you, Regina. And best of luck with your new projects. And thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.